Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Woodzik. This is episode 74 with Hannah Brooks Olson. Hannah is a writer whose work I greatly admire, and I was pleased as punch to sit down and talk about her process, also to talk about Seattleish, which is a platform that she co-founded and is the editor-in-chief of. So you're going to enjoy this interview about writing and being unapologetic with your writing voice. This episode is sponsored by KLMXYZ Creative Communications. You can visit klmxyz.com to get examples of Katherine Lynn Morgan's gorgeous graphic design work. And so if you have a poster or a campaign that you're trying to wrap your brain around, uh, I highly suggest hiring Katherine Lynn Morgan and KLMXYZ Creative Communications. Thank you to everyone who has supported the podcast financially. Even a couple of bucks goes a long way to make sure that this podcast remains free for all. You can visit theatricalmustang.podbean.com to make a one-time or recurring donation. Thanks so much, everyone, and please enjoy episode 74 with Hannah Brooks Olson. I'm excited to be sitting down and chatting with Hannah Brooks Olson. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So last week you posted this really, I loved it, this piece about street harassment yeah. and how women sometimes choose not to engage or choose to smile yeah. instead of engaging. Can you tell me what is the origin of this piece and what sort of, what journey did it go on? Sure. Um, so I, I think like a lot of people, I use calls for submission as writing prompts um, sure. because a lot of times I'll have like an idea for an essay kind of clanging around and one thing I find is um, if if a subject comes up in conversation like multiple times and I find that I'm having the same conversation with multiple people I'm like okay that's probably something that's probably an essay right. and I had first sort of remembered this story the story that kicks off the essay uh, was an encounter I'd had um, several years ago I was standing with a person I was dating at a bus stop and I was getting harassed by someone and my partner at the time was like right there and he leaned over and he was like this would not keep happening to you if you did not keep engaging people. Like, don't engage him. Don't talk back to this guy. And, and I was just being friendly because the guy was drunk and, you know, and I, and it was just like that moment standing there with him where I was like, ah, bruh, like I now kind of have a better understanding about what you don't understand about the situation, which is that I get talked to on the street all of the time. Like I think a ton of us do. A lot of women just get talked to you just have people demanding your time and attention like so much more than I think men realize and I think most of us through trial and error have established different coping mechanisms or way to deal with that and so for me the things that I have found in my research which is just my life uh, is that anytime I've just told someone like can you please leave me alone or fuck right off, or can I swear on this? Absolutely, okay, good. you can. Because um, I'm not going to be able to not. Um, <laughs> but anytime I I would try that, it got worse. The situation it can was escalate worse. The situation, unfortunately, super, yeah. 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 And so at that moment, I was like, I'm doing the thing that is keeping us both safe right now. By the way, and also for a person, a man who considers himself to be a feminist, that's a really shitty way to tell me to deal with this situation. To, one, assume that you know better than I do how to keep myself safe. Right. And two, to tell me that it is my fault that someone is coming to talk to me in an unwanted way. And so I, I first sort of remembered that story um, a couple of years ago when, like, sort of at the outset of, like, Gamergate kind of, there was, like, not all men. And then the response sure. was hashtag yes, all women. And that was when I really kind of remembered that story as something. And so I'd been thinking about it for a while. And then um, and then there was a writing prompt that came up that was, like, uh, for, a, like, an anthology that's going to be about, like, rape culture in general. And the whole idea of it is that it's, like, it's not that bad. And so that was my story that I wrote. And it was rejected, which is fine. That happens. Uh, and then I was like, well, maybe I'll pitch it a few other places. And it was rejected a few other places because it didn't have a news peg, which, like, I was like, the news peg is called my life and my experience and the experience of women everywhere, but okay. Um, 
And so then I was like, well, fuck it. I'll put it to Medium, which is, like, Medium is basically my slush pile. Like, it's where I put stories that have not gotten picked up but that I still think are, if not good, they're okay. And I've already put in the work of writing them and researching them. Because a lot of my essays are pretty research-heavy because I'm kind of came up in journalism. And I really like the combination of... I love this, like, nexus of, like, a lyric essay and a reported essay. Absolutely. And once I've already put in that much work and I've gathered all this data and shit, I'm like, well, okay. So I put it on Medium. And then within, like, two hours, it was, like, clicking to the top of Medium. And that happens. And I could not tell you what the recipe for that is. Because I've had some essays that I'm like, this one's a slam dunk. And it has, like, 200 reads. And then I've had others that I'm like, this is K. And uh, and then it's got, like, 100,000. So I... I couldn't tell you what it is that sometimes resonates, but that one, like, hit something with people. And then for the last week, it's been, like, really kind of popping. It's kind of a long tale, like, surprisingly long. What? Tell me about the reaction that people have been having it to it. It has and, been... And, and if it's a gendered response. Oh, sure, yeah. It has been almost universally positive, which is shocking. I was super hesitant to publish that essay. Um, one, because it, it has, like light indictments of several people in my life. Uh, Just because it's... And I think people know this. Like, when you date a writer, you're friends with a writer, like, fucking expect... (laughs) You might show up. You're going to be there. (laughs) Um, This is just a reality, and anyone who says otherwise is lying to you. Um, But I was was very nervous about the, like, there's no such thing as rape culture answer, and it has been almost none of that. I don't know if it just the MRAs haven't discovered this essay yet, which like don't tell them maybe. Uh don't, don't, what, what is that phrase? Oh, the uh, men's rights activists, like the okay. the the meninists. Okay. The yeah, those guys um the ones who like eschew the idea of uh of like consent education because they're like I don't need to be told not to rape and I'm like but but maybe you do. <laughs> uh and maybe you rejecting it tells me something about you as a person. Um but no, it's been super positive. The one, the one thing I that I haven't seen, but I've like secondarily seen, or people have told me that they have received when they shared it, was um, people asking like, "Well, is there something about her that like maybe she's like, there's something about her that that draws that response?" Like, I don't think all women experience this kind of, and I, and so one like to set the record straight, there's nothing about me that is particularly drawing to people on the street. I'm, like, small. I could easily be mistaken for a seven-year-old boy on any given day, like, just based <laughs> on my my attire and the way I conduct myself. Um, so it's not. It's, like, you don't have to be, like, really hot or really conventionally attractive or really anything. It just is existing. And uh, and so that's been, that's been the main kind of, like, side-eye response. But for the most part, I mean, almost... I've, I've had a few women be like, well, maybe you shouldn't. You're part of the problem, which is, like, something that's addressed in the essay. And so the other thing is, as often happens, my biggest surprise is how terrible people's reading comprehension is. That's usually what I learn about the public, <laughs> uh, is that they're just not good at reading all the way down. Which is a funny thing about Medium is that... Um, it tells you how many people actually read the essay all the way through. Oh, wow. It tells you how many views you have and then how many reads you have. And so the reading percentage for that essay is, like, actually pretty high. Um, about half of the people make it to the bottom, which is a lot less than the rest of the Internet, where about 15% of the people usually make it to the bottom of a page statistically. Um, but so I, so I can see. I, I would venture to guess <laughs> it's mostly women who make it to the bottom of the page, and it's mostly men who don't. So you're one of my favorite people on Twitter. Oh, thank you. That's kind. Uh, I loved your coverage of the Democratic debates last night. Um, where does... Can you pinpoint a moment where you're like, you had someone influence you or you had an experience and you're like, I'm going to say whatever the fuck I want all the time. Huh. Because I think one of the things I love about your voice is it is so unapologetic and just it's so... it's says things that maybe might rub people the wrong way, but it's so well-written that you can't really tear into it too much. <laughs> that's incredibly and I just, kind. I just want to be you, kind of, oh, and so I'm just, like, trying to take notes kind. and shit. So. I mean, a part of that, I, I have to address the fact that part of that comes from a position of privilege, right? I am a, I'm a person who is white, passes as white, depending on how I feel like talking about myself that day. Um, I am cisgendered. I am 
mostly heterosexual, uh, and I'm in a job position. So my day job is actually for a very unapologetic man who is involved in politics, and uh, and he hired me f- kind of for that reason. And so I really get to do that now. And there was kind of a turning point. I was working in traditional news. Um, that's where I got my start. I worked in public radio, and then I worked in TV news and radio news here in town. And and I was I actually <laughs> at one point I was working for. Como News here in Seattle, and I got like called into the principal's office, and they had printed out a bunch of my tweets and like redlined them, and like yeah, dead serious, and they were like really big on the page, like they were like really pixelated, and there was like twenty pages of my tweets that they'd gone through, and they were just like, you represent this news station, da 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 da, but the reason I had been hired from the for the news station originally was that there had been this like sort of jokey joke like public commentary social kind of site that Como had had and that's what I got hired for then when they axed the site they moved me into social media and like digital like basically to try and get me to quit and I just like wouldn't take the bait I was like oh you don't want me here (laughs) tough noogies I'm gonna stay and so I just like stayed and they were like you represent this news station you have to be objective like you can't and I was like this is terrible one uh, and two, what a weird response from like a news station that does, I would argue, an awful job being objective. And so like when I left that job, I was very much like, not going to do that again. And so I, I also like at the same time kind of pivoted my career a little bit. I'd been working in news. Like I'm always working in something that allows me to write outside of work. Like on any given week, I'm doing so much writing outside of my day job. Um, and so I like kind of pivoted toward marketing because that also like freed me up a little bit more. And then what I started noticing was I was getting more and more writing opportunities. I was getting more speaking opportunities based on the things that were the most like sort of uncensored. And so then I was like, well, this is working better. Like for years I tried to, and I think we all probably tried this out like in our early social media days, like try to be like a kind of person. You know, I was like, maybe I'm going to be like this kind of social media person. Maybe I'm going to be this kind of person. And, like, you try on these little, like, personas. Sure. And then, uh, you know, and then we have this sort of rise of, I think, a, a lot of us would point to Lindy West as, like, a Absolutely. as a, as an yeah. example of someone yeah. who was, like, fuck your personality politics. Fuck your idea of, like, what women should and shouldn't say online and... And fuck this idea of like, oh, like, you know, I don't, I don't want my tweets to like reflect poorly on my employer. Like, I don't think most people think about it that way. I think only employers are the ones who think about it that way. And, and now, and now I'm kind of at a point where I'm like, well, I'm really done in my life, like hoping that the persona that I put on the internet is the right one for you. And if it's not like fine, there's a lot of, there's a lot of like little brown-haired girls like me who went to school for writing who can run your, like, crappy corporate social media account if that's the job you're hiring for, and I'll figure out something else. And so it's just, it's been, but it's absolutely, like, it's not something, not everyone can do it because a lot of us have to work. It's, like, the same reason I couldn't get, like, tattoos all the way everywhere I wanted when I worked in coffee shops because I still had to fucking hold down a job. And I had to, like, put a Band-Aid over my nose piercing and shit because they were like, no nose piercings at Tully's. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I got to pay rent. Uh, and so I, at a certain point, I just didn't have to do that anymore. So I stopped. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> where, where do you find inspiration for stories? Are you constantly looking for sort of those hot-button issues, or is it pretty organic for you? I actually try really hard not to hop on the issue that everyone else is writing an essay about. I try really hard not to do that. I know a lot of writers who are very, I mean, there's, I think opportunistic is the right word. It's, it has a real negative tinge, but I think it's really true. Like they see an issue and they're like, what's my take on that? And I think that's very respectful. I think a lot of people really nail it, but, um, I don't, one, I don't like to weigh in on things that actually I don't have a anything unique to add. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got in my young working life was like, if you don't have anything new to say about a conversation, there is no point in you talking. And especially, again, as like a as like a white person, like there's a lot of things that it is not for me to comment on. You know, like I'm not going to comment on someone else's experience, and I don't want to take up space of writers from 
marginalized groups or who or just who have better experience than I like I'm not the right person there are a lot of things I have not bothered to pitch about because I'm like there's better people to comment on this than me um so I actually try really hard not to be reactionary and um at least in like personal writing and instead I just sort of try and figure out what like what's happening to me and what is happening to the people around me and what are the sort of currents that I'm that I'm feeling and then usually it's there'll be a moment where I'm like thinking about something or I'm talking about something or I'm talking with a friend or I'm talking with my partner and I'm like is that anything like I like pause I'm like is this a thing is this a story and they'll either be like "Mm, I don't know or they'll be like yeah yes this could you could go there with that um so it's a lot of what I observe that is outside of that like like I'll react to plenty of shit on Twitter I'll go on a Twitter tear about fucking anything but whether or not it gets translated into a full essay is usually based on whether or not I think I have anything to add to that and if I don't, and I've, I've, we'll have people ask, like, when are you going to cover this? When are you going to write about this thing? And it's like, I don't, there's plenty of other people doing it better than I could. And I will direct you to them and I will give you those links and I will send you in that direction. But like, I, you, I'm not the person to write that thing. And I think, um, that's hard. You learn that over time. Like, as a young writer, I would just like fucking react to anything. I would be like, no, oh, I have an opinion. I had like a shitty blog that, thank God, I was able to scrub from the internet. And, like, uh, where I would just opine about shit that I didn't know anything about. And then eventually you learn to kind of fucking take a backseat and figure out when it's right for you. Right. So from the decision point of I'm going to write about this to having a full essay, what – walk me through that process. How long does it take? What – how do you write? I'm just – I just want to know about your process. I am a very fast writer. Um which comes from, like, doing, like, journalism. Like, for a while, I was a freelancer, and um, and I wrote for a bunch of different publications, and I had, like, I literally, my day for, like, about a year and a half was I, my, I had daily deadlines for various publications that totaled about 10 articles a day that I had to do. Like, I would just wake up and just, like, blah, blah, blah. shit! Yeah, it was nuts. It was really something. It was a lot. It was a grind. Um, but, so I got really fast. Um... But uh, that means I'm kind of sloppy, and so I try and now I try and run things by editors. I'm actually I'm really fortunate in my day job right now. I get to work with one of the best editors I've ever worked with in my life. I work really closely with Paul Constant, and he is Love such Paul oh he and he's such a good editor. Like he would blush really hard if he knew that I was saying this about him, but I would tell it to his face. And I have he is just a very empathetic editor, which I think goes a really long way. Um. But I, it depends. Sometimes I sit down on a Sunday afternoon and I finally have the idea that I've been like working through and I've workshopped it on everyone I fucking know. And I've, everyone I know has heard the same me workshopping it to them. Luckily they don't talk to each other, so they don't know. <laughs> but I'm like a full on one trick pony. Um, and then I'll just sit down and like just kind of go to town. It's really rare that I start and stop and come back to something. Most of the time, once I'm finally at the idea point, uh, I will just do it, um, and it'll take me, you know, an hour and a half or two hours maybe. I do a lot of alt-tabbing. I'm, like, Googling stuff. I'm forever um, checking my facts, remembering, making sure that I'm remembering studies I read. I try really hard to incorporate actual numbers. Um, I will never in an article say most if it is not, in fact, more than 50% of people or instances. Um, and then... And then I'll kind of, like, work it through. Uh, my partner right now is a really good editor. Anytime on, like, my Medium, if you ever see, like, that Keith Caswell was, like, a contributor, it's because I sent him the link, and I was like, can you check this for me? <laughs> and he'll make notes, and sometimes I discard them, and sometimes I don't. Um, and then I either submit it, or I press publish if it's on Medium, if I go straight there. But it kind of depends. You know, I write for a couple of different places right now. I've I've freelanced for like the establishment most recently, and I was working with the Daily Dot for a long time. And I'm not doing so much pitching right now, but um, you know, sometimes I sometimes it starts with a pitch, and then I but I don't think it takes me longer than two hours to write almost anything, which is like a that's a real jerk that's thing. astounding. That's a real jerk thing to admit. But here's the thing: is if I don't, so I have like a pre, I have pretty bad ADHD, and. Um, and it's, like, a fun one-two punch. I have ADHD and I have dyslexia. And so, like, between those two things, like, it's, like, if I don't just sit and do the damn thing, 
it's never getting done. I'm going to forget that I had the idea. And then, like, two weeks later, I'm going to be like, didn't I have a really great idea for an essay? What was that? Fuck. And then it's just, like, gone. So I just have to sit and, like, and just throw it at the page. And then and it usually comes along pretty well. So pitching. Yeah. I think our listeners might want to yeah. hear about this. What Sucks. What is your battle plan going into a pitch? A big part of it is knowing the publication, right? Like, I think a lot of people pitch... I mean, I get I get emails from PR Flax still because I'm on so many, like, weird email lists right. uh, where I get pitches from people that are just so... Because I, so, I also run a website called Seattleish, and um, I get pitches for that all the time that are... I'm like, you have never clicked through the site because this doesn't even make sense for us. That has nothing to do with what we do. Um, and so a big part of it is knowing the site. So I think... If you have a site that you, like, love um, and it feels like it sounds like you, it's probably a pretty good chance they might want something of yours. And then I always come with a pretty fully baked idea. Like, not a piece. Most people don't want a piece on spec, but I come with, like, a like the nut graph is written, right? The, the key paragraph is written. Um, and I will find whoever the editor is. A lot of times I'll, like, friend them on Twitter first. Like, I'll start following them on Twitter and, like, like some of their tweets and like let them know I'm there so that when your name shows up in their inbox they're like that name is familiar and then they go and they find your Twitter account and they're like oh this is a person that does these things right so you kind of like plant yourself with them and then maybe they hate that I don't know I liked it as an editor actually a lot when I already knew someone coming at me um and then kind of let them know what it is going to be I find a very helpful thing when you're pitching is let them know how long you think it's going to be when you can deliver it by and if it does have a news peg, a lot of people want a news peg when I don't think that's always necessary, especially if it's like a personal essay. Um, but grounding it in why, especially if it's a personal essay, why why is it going on the internet and not in your diary is really important. And so either contextualizing it with something else you've read or something else that's going on, something that they're doing on the site, and then really being clear why you're the person to do it I think is super important. Um, I... An editor I had a long time ago, not that long, like six years ago, uh, who is now uh, the food editor at Seattle Met, Alicia Vermillion, is like a like a was a big mentor for me. And one of the best pieces of advice she ever gave me was, as a writer, like you're the product, like you personally are the product, right? So whether that means you're going to interview someone and you need to really fucking look professional, or it means that your email has to spell out, like your email pitch has to spell out, like why you're the right person. Just remember that, like, you are very much a part of what you're selling. It's not like your essay is not never going to stand alone. Um, and then it helps if you've developed any kind of an audience. Like, if you can assure them that people will actually read it once you write it, that's pretty helpful too. And then if you get rejected, like, fuck it, I could paper my house with rejections <laughs> and rejections of essays that later on went on to be very well received, but where someone just like didn't get it. And like, sometimes that's my bad. Like, I'm fucking terrible at selling myself in a lot of ways um so sometimes it helps to have written the thing ahead of time just so that you kind of know what the angle is but and then not being upset if someone's like i don't know if that's right for us then try somewhere else there are no shortage of places on the internet i would recommend if you're not just going to put it straight to medium which of course will not pay you don't send it somewhere that won't pay you (laughs) unless you really love that publication like Shop it around somewhere you can at least make $150 first, you know, because, like, your time is worth something. And so I think um, comparing rates can also be really helpful. Thank you. Thank you. I'm like, after I, hit, after I, after I click off, I'm going to take notes on everything you just said. Yeah, and- I, I don't know if any of this is helpful. I just, this is all. <laughs> I love it. I, love I mean, it. all of this is, this, like, anything I know is just shit that I figured out from my own, like, from doing my own, like, really misguided things. Like, sending just horrendously bad pitches that I look back on now, I'm like, oh, of course she didn't have... Why would she accept that? That's awful. And then, like, the essay turned out great, but I just didn't do a good job of telling an editor why it would be good. Like, and I have... And, yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have a terrible history of just awful pitches. I don't blame any editor who's ever rejected me, because, like, I, I'm not good at that. But it's a it's an acquired skill. Yeah. Tell me about Seattleish. Where did yeah. this come from? Where did this idea come from? Yeah. And, and where are you going now? Man, I don't know where we're going. Um, I never know. Uh, we, so like a million years ago, there was Gothamist, which runs a New York website called Gothamist. 
uh, they had little local blogs, and, like, local blogs were, like, really hot in, like, 2009. Like, everyone, like, Patch was on AOL, you know, and there was, like, <laughs> Patch, not, like, Terrace, and, like, every, like, little town had its own little thing, which was a great idea, but it was often really poorly executed, or it was executed with um, way, like, um, unattainable goals in mind. So, Gothamist had a Seattle imprint called Seattleist. Um, and it had been through a series of editors, and it was kind of like, it didn't have a really clearly defined identity, mm. and it was kind of competing at the same time with, obviously, the slog, and then Seattle Weekly, and Crosscut was kind of becoming more of a thing, and Publicola was separate at that point. So there was, like, a lot of noise kind of in Seattle, and a lot of people clamoring for the same kind of stories. And I was writing for Seattleist as a volunteer which I usually caution people against. I literally just caution people against. But at the time, I was 23 years old. I had only lived in Seattle for like a year. I was working in content marketing for the first time. Um, I had just left public radio because there were no jobs there. And because I had student debt and they were never going to pay me enough. And I realized that the private sector was literally the only way I was going to be able to pay rent and my and my debts. Um, and I was just really tired of like being really broke all the time. And... So I was doing it for the exposure, which is not great, but in that particular instance, part of it was that I was going to get to work with a really good editor. I knew the editor at that point was really great. And one piece of advice I always give people is, like, chase good editors and good mentors. Like, chase, go workplaces if you can, where the person that you're going to be working directly for can teach you something. Like, I have actively sought out great mentors. Um, in my last job, I got to work right under Whitney Ricketts, who is of course like Seattle famous and incredible. Yeah. yeah. And so I got to work with her, you know, I've worked, um, I'm working right now with one of the best political operatives in town, arguably like, and, and it's because I seek out people who I want to learn something from. And so I kind of did that with Seattleist. And then within three months, um, she was going to leave to go start Eater Seattle because they were just like kicking that up. And so she was like, I need someone else to be the editor-in-chief here. Uh, you. And I, again, I was like 23, did not really know what I was doing, and it was very kind of her to extend that to me, and I took it. And that was around the, that was when I was like freelancing, writing a million articles at a time because I like needed to. And so I took that, and I became the editor-in-chief of Seattleist. I was also the associate editor of a different website at the same time because I was just like scrapping together money because writing, of course, pays for shit. And... Um, and so we had this site at Seattleist, and we really, myself and some of my friends, kind of turned it into something we really wanted it to be. And we really defined it as a site. We had a very cohesive idea of what we wanted to do. We um, really jumped into a couple of local races, and, and we started doing some really good stuff. And then we were succinctly shit-canned. Like, really promptly, Gothamist was like, if you cannot reach an absolutely astronomical number of page views per month... Uh, we're gonna shut you down, and then they were like, "Actually, we're just gonna shut you down. Goodbye." Wow. So Succinctly shit can yeah. is my new favorite <laughs> phrase. Please uh, continue. It was very, it was very quick, uh, and and it was sad, and so that was a bummer, and that was a big setback for me because I was like, "Well, fuck, maybe I'm not good at this whole thing." And then a few years went by, and my friends and I would have these like email loops that we would like we would send out these long chain emails to each other, and the subject line would always be like, "Ah, times I really miss Seattleist," and it would be a story that we really wanted to write something on. And so finally, after doing that for like two years, we were like drunk one night, which is almost anything I've ever done can start with. We were drunk one night, and <laughs> so we were drunk one night, and we were like, "Wouldn't it be funny if we started our own site?" And it would be like when we had Seattleist, but it's going to be our own thing. And we would call it Seattle-ish. And then we were like, nah, let's look on the internet. And then that didn't exist. And so we made a Tumblr. And for like six months, we just experimented with it, where we just would like see if we could keep it up. Because one thing that people do not realize about having a blog on the side is that it's fucking impossible to keep it up. Like, it's right. so hard to put out content when it's not your job. It's so hard to just make time for it. And so we were like, okay, can we even do that? So we tried it out for about six months, and it was working pretty well. So then another night when we were drunk, um, we were all <laughs> hanging out. And it's myself and two other girls. It's me and Sarah and Lloyd and Alex Hudson. And they both also have, like, real jobs. They do real work um, that's very, like, relevant, cool work. But we were, like, all hanging out, and it's, like, just the three of us. We're, like, this little, like, cabal. Um, we look like the fucking witches of Eastwick. Like, we're so – yeah. Anyway, we're, like, a, we're a crowd. We're just loud and cackling at all times. And so we were, like, loudly cackling one night. And um, 
we were like, we should make a Facebook page. Like, we should officially launch this. Like, we did a cold open. Now we're going to, like, launch it, launch it. So we made a Facebook page. And, like, there's still jokes that are on the Facebook page from the night we launched it. We're like, our address. Like, we don't have an address. We don't have an office. And our address is listed, like, 420 Balls Avenue, which was, like, just... <laughs> Because we're 12, and, like, it's, like, at one point in Facebook asking, like, if you ever won any awards, and we're, like, I don't know, best blog from Hannah and Sarah's moms, which is, like, not even true, I don't think. <laughs> I'm pretty sure my mom likes other blogs better. Uh, <laughs> I'm probably runner-up. Uh, and and so a lot of that's just, like, stuck. And so we did this, like, open, and then we were just dicking around for months and then all of a sudden it started to get like actual attention because like we're you know sarah and i are both reporters like by trade or like sort of by by training um we met in college radio and that's really where we both come from and so we do like you know we do some reporting but also we are just sort of around like it's it's incredible how much information you can get just from being around just from being that like yeah. a person that people know from like the bars and then will text you when they have a scoop like people will just text me i think this is happening today and i'll be like whoa that's interesting <laughs> and then also in seattle like so much shit is so open like you don't have to be in city council chambers to watch the meetings you can watch it on seattle channel they're broadcast live right and the same is true with olympia you can watch senate hearings from your desk at work with one earbud in and it's boring as fuck but sometimes really cool things happen or really important things happen or shitty things happen. And so um, we don't get to do nearly as much as we would want to because it's no one's full-time job. But it has been the kind of this funny thing that we've been able to kind of like keep afloat. And now we actually have like people who read it, which is great. People who know what we do. They like ask us to do things and we try in the kind of way. And we mostly do advocacy journalism and like op-editing. It's a lot of op-editing just because like – one thing that is really important to us is keeping the local media kind of, like, honest. Because, like, Seattle has very little independent local media. I mean, we have a lot. We have South Seattle Emerald. We have Seattle Globalist. We have Crosscut, kind of, and and The Stranger. and um, But not as much as we used to. Like, all of the TV channels are owned by some big outside company, right? After Como got bought by Sinclair Broadcasting, that was it for, like, local, local, um, you know, one of the stations is owned by Bonneville, which is owned by the Mormon Church. Like, with, like, it, like, there's, yeah. So, and you know, we've all heard, we've all heard talk radio, shitty conservative talk radio in Seattle, peddled as like news, like, and like on the news site as if it's news. And like, if they can fucking do that, then I can write an essay about how I feel about like our handling of homelessness and like how we just need to be more empathetic and call it news too. So that's kind of our angle on it like we don't ever pretend to be objective because fucking we're not if you've met any of us you know that and uh for a long time we didn't have our name on the site mostly just because we all day jobs and also because with like you know interneting while female is like it's pretty real like there's a lot of people who have a problem with women saying things on the internet um but then uh the jig was kind of up when we were in seattle magazine like with our pictures and our names and (laughs) it was like oh yeah hi wait yeah, we kind of got, well, we got sold out a couple of times, um, just by like various, like we would start showing up and stuff. Like at one point we were like on the stranger on election night, like hanging out with Dan Savage and everyone was like, what? <laughs> it's you people. And we were like, yeah. So, and then, uh, yeah, then we were on Seattle magazine last fall on the most influential list, but we were in good company. We were with like Ajoma Olu and then like some other really cool people were on that list too. And so we were like, okay, that's pretty cool. You're super influential then. No. I, here's the thing about Seattle. One of the things I love about this town, and that I also hate, and I've heard this from like musicians actually several times over, is it takes so little to make a sound in this town. Like I could walk to the window of this office right now and like yell a rumor, and it would be in all of the papers tomorrow because it takes so little to be a story. It takes very little to get to get attention. Do you think that that's a tangent of the Seattle freeze? Like, part of that mentality? Like... Yeah. I don't want to connect with you like this, but I want to go home and write a bunch of shit. Oh, I mean, like, yeah, I think people just do that anyway. I think that's also interneting. Um, Actually, I don't really believe in the Seattle freeze. I never had a hard time here, but I think the main issue... 
I think the bigger issue with Seattle is that people are terrible at keeping calendars. Yeah. So they're not very good at, like, they're not good at remembering. Like, I live and die by my calendar, but so many times I'm like, I'll, like, check in with someone and be like, still on for tomorrow? And they'll be like, nope, I forgot. And you're like, oh, nope. Um, but I think, I don't know, I think it's, we just, we're so used to getting, first of all, no attention from the national news, right? We are so used to being completely ignored and that's still the case, like, I think other than maybe, like, fucking the tech boom or whatever, it's, like, the only thing that makes any headlines. But we're just so used to, like, all of our art and all of our culture, like, existing completely inside Seattle. Like, it's like fucking Willy Wonka's factory. Like, nobody ever goes in, nobody ever comes out. Like, we just are all here all the time. And so I think it's very easy to connect with people in various groups. My advice for people who are new to Seattle is always, like, get involved with whatever it is that you're into because you will immediately be in You'll be in once you find the thing you're into, whether it's politics or theater or the arts or whatever. Like, once you meet a few people in that circle, you're going to know all of them. Like, every one of our circles and every one of our industries is, like, as far as I have ever seen, is, like, fairly incestuous. Like, we all, like, hang out together, you know, and certainly people date all across all those boundaries, too. But um, but I think... I think it's just very easy to make something because it's easy to get people around you to notice it. And um, and I think we actually bizarrely tend to be incredibly encouraging as a city. Like, like strangely encouraging. Like, your strange project that you decide to do, like, it's not that hard to get a lot of people behind it. I found. Maybe other people don't have that experience. But I think it's, like, surprisingly easy to get people to give a shit here. I like that. I want it like cross stitched on a. <laughs> I Seattle. <laughs> bizarrely easy to make shit. <laughs> Anything you make will be praised by somebody. It's really true though. It's like it's it's so interesting to me, and I've had people tell me. Um, I used to interview a lot of musicians for a while for my job, and I had multiple musicians tell me like, the stuff I was making early on wasn't even good, but people said it was good because we're so, we just are not making that much. stuff stuff like there's just not and and anything that does get made stays here like it's very hard to get things outside of Seattle that's super tough it's hard to get national acclaim out of Seattle um but I think it's easier to get noticed in Seattle and everyone's like really accessible like there's no one there's no one in Seattle you couldn't get a meeting with with like one fucking tweet again other than maybe Lindy West because she's like busy as fuck (laughs) I don't think anybody else really could not meet with you so interesting. I just, you could, I could just listen to you talk for hours, but I suppose I should throw another question your way. I'll fucking talk uh, for hours, so. You were talking earlier about mm-hmm. uh, not feeling that great at self-promotion or that comfortable at self-promotion or. Yeah. Can we dig into that a little bit? Yeah. Because I hear that from a lot. I mean, I'm an actor and a director and I think theater artists are a bit more adept at that since because we have the ego thing of we want to play sure. to a full house. Sure. Uh, but I hear that a lot from writers. And just how do you how do you get over the that sort of, I mean, maybe it feels inauthentic, and, like, what advice do you have for folks? I think do it in the way that is absolutely the best, the most you you can do it, right? Like, for me, that involves being very open about my process, being very open about what, what led me to something. Um, I, there's not very many things I won't just like tell somebody because I think keeping secrets sucks. And I think like that's how stigma breeds is when people like just don't fucking talk about what's hard. And so for me, a lot of my self promotion comes from like admitting that that's what I'm doing, like acknowledging it. Like, Hey, I wrote a thing because it's literally my livelihood and my livelihood depends on whether or not you click on it and share it. And like, I think doing it any other way doesn't feel authentic. Like when people are, when people are like pretend like, um, like aw shucks about it, they're just like, well, you know, I'm just threw together a little thing. And it's like, no, you worked really hard and you need someone to pay attention to it. And I think writers similarly, like fucking, we want to get a lot of page views. We need to like any writer who's like, Oh, I'm not, I'm not in it for the reader's. It's just what's inside me. Like, okay, cool. Then keep a diary. The rest of us are trying to do this because we actually really want people to to read it and because we think that we have something to say. And it is difficult. Um, I also would encourage people not to have your 
Twitter and your Facebook page like linked like oh no oh right and like know your audience too right the difference between how I tweet out an article I've read or I've written and how I share it on Facebook is like super different like because those are different audiences and the other thing I would say is if you're going to be a self-promoter which you're gonna be because we are be also a promoter of other people like your share to like share of your work to share of other people's work ratio should be very out of balance because for every one article of yours you're sharing or one thing you made or one thing you're doing, you should be sharing five incredible things someone else has done. Like I think the number one thing is handing over the microphone, elevating other people's voices, and being like a good cheerleader of the people in your community I think is super paramount. Because I think it's okay if you promote yourself if people know that you're, like, a team player in the community. Um, or at least that's how I, that's how I justify it to myself. But, I, like, I'm, I'm very critical of people I know who are not good community boosters. Like, I think one of the best things you can do for the people in your life, and I've written about this before and I've said it a lot of times, is fucking show up for the people in your life. Like, I don't care how shitty your friend's band is, go watch your friend play. Because then that friend is going to share the stupid thing you wrote on Facebook, right? Because that's how that agreement works of being a colleague or of being a friend or of just being an acquaintance is like you have to elevate what other people are doing if you expect them to ever do it for you. And you can never do enough self-promotion to get – if you're the only person yelling about your stuff, you're sunk – and right. so you have to give other people a reason to yell about your stuff too. And a really good way to do that is to yell about their stuff. So that's my other, that's my big advice with self-promotion is being an other people promoter. Love I think it. It's helpful. Can we look at the other side of that coin, which yeah. would be the anti-cheerleader, which would be people who are dicks online? Oh yeah. I'd love to do that too. Yeah, sure. Oh yeah. I said How, some, What is, what yeah. is your like 101 to dealing with trolls or negative oh, commenters? Man. I, so first of all, I'm a, I will block people. I will just block people, and I'll and I'll tell them like, oh, okay, uh, fuck you. I didn't ask for your opinion. And then I'll block them. <laughs> That's my favorite. I love tweeting something really rude back, and they're just like, Meh. Uh, so I fucking block people. No one deserves your time or your attention. Like, only engage if you want to. It's not your job to educate everyone who comes at you. I think a lot of us feel like, well, I have to have the last word, but you don't. You know, you are right, or you said the right thing. Right. Uh, so block people. Um, I blocked a guy the other day and he emailed me later to ask why I had blocked him. What? And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. You think you deserve this much of my attention? Oh. Uh, so I just, whatever. Just people will show up. Get rid of them. You don't need them in your life. The one caveat to that I will say is, um, I think a lot of people listen to their praise like 100% of the time and they listen to their criticism 0% of the time. And I think, uh, I think one thing we actually do have to be careful is, like, sort of immediately, like, writing off haters when, like, sometimes you might need to be corrected. Like, there's a lot of blind spots I have, like, that I need to be told on. You know, like, I, like there are, is language usage and there's, like, considerations of other people's experience and, um, and I think you don't get it if you don't listen to a little bit. So sometimes, like, wonder if people are... Maybe people are hating you because you really did fuck something up and you did break someone's heart with some language you used and, like, that's worth listening to. But if it's clearly just a fucking troll, if it's a if it's a men's rights guy who's, like, clomping into your feed who's just like, fee, fi, fo, fum, there's no rape culture, like, just fucking <laughs> block it. You don't need that. And you're never going to get through to that person is the other thing. Is it possible that you can either get through to someone or that someone else in a conversation that you're having will learn from that conversation? then maybe it's worth having, like, if that's the case. If you do not think anyone is going to walk away from this in a better state and you know you're not going to be moved on a thing because it's, like, some fucking transphobic asshole, like, then then don't bother having a conversation. You, like... Right. And don't engage with people who are, like, literally just out to fucking be an asshole because they don't they don't deserve to, like, drive up your adrenaline levels. And I'm like the rawest nerve too. I'm so I'm so sensitive and I'm so easily derailed by like one mean comment. I'm so I just like wither up and die. And so that's also part of my blocking is I'm like, I just don't even want to see it. Just get out of here. Out of there. Out of the feed. Never uh, again. Yeah. But sometimes I mean sometimes I'll take the time. I was like I I schooled a guy today on um like 
language that's mean to people with mental health issues. And he was, like, not having it, and it became very clear. And so I was just like, okay, well, whatever. But I kind of kept going longer than I would have otherwise because I felt like other people who were getting those, because it was on Facebook, right? So anyone else who had, like, liked the feed was getting those pings. And I was like, okay, well, maybe somebody else in this feed is going to, like, see some of these talking points or, like, understand where I'm coming from or just sort of see this taking place and be more empathetic to this issue. So I was like, maybe that's worthwhile. But if I didn't feel like that was the case, then I would have just been like, okay, well, have fun. You're mean. (laughs) Enjoy that. Enjoy that you want to die on this hill of being mean and using mean language. Good luck. So choose your battles, but feel free to block when needed. Oh, block. I love it. Don't even mute. Don't even mute. Give them them the satisfaction of blocking them just because so they don't fucking show up anymore. Like, just use that feature. It's there for you. It's one of the few things on Twitter that you have at your disposal to protect yourself. Twitter is fucking terrible for most people. Because they refuse to develop it in ways that are protective. So use blocking. Right on. So I want you to talk about a time. One of the things I love about putting writing, writing out is that Mm -hmm. if you, if you, after the fact, either online or in person, someone reaches out to you and Mm -hmm. says, that meant so much to me. That made me feel less alone. That made me change my mind about something. Do you have, like, a story about something that you've written touching someone in a way that you didn't expect? Yeah. Um, I wrote a piece. I have sort of a fraught relationship with my family, as I think many of us do, for, like, a variety of reasons. Um, but I wrote a piece a while ago about that it sort of started out as a more scholarly piece on first-generation college students, which is, like, kids who are the first in their family to go to college, which I am. Um, I'm the first person in my family to finish University. My brother went to school but did not finish his degree. Um, and he went, like, a half hour away from my family's house. So I, like, moved out of the state and did something. Um, and uh, and I got actually a really heartfelt response from my mom that was, like, surprisingly kind of nuanced. And I, and I feel like it was actually kind of a good, kind of a good conversation with us. But um, I think the things that I've written about the most that have spurred that kind of response, and I do, like... It's funny, like, when you look in your Facebook, like, messages, and then you look in your other messages, and then there's even a second layer of filtered messages. Yeah, there's, like, a secret other layer of filtered messages. And recently, this piece I wrote that was on Medium, it it was just, my inbox was full of people saying, like, thank you, like, this allowed me to have a conversation with my partner about this thing. Thank you, this is something that I have been feeling, too. And I was like, oh, this is something that a lot of us are going through. And I think the things when I mostly get positive responses is when... When it's a uh, a shared experience that is also a silent experience, um, I wrote a while back about um, sort of the privilege of being able to fully live with your mental illness and do the things that make you feel that are sort of the best for you when you are experiencing mental illness. Um, one of like the biggest like struggles of living with mental illness is like the exact thing that's going to make you feel the best that you can possibly be in your experience, like in what you're experiencing is often the thing that is diametrically opposed to making a living, holding down a job, and paying your rent. Like, it's it's constantly the exact opposite. Because what you really want to do is just stay home or stay inside or protect yourself or do whatever. And then the exact opposite of that is that you cannot do that because we all have to go do things. Uh, and I wrote a piece about that, and I had a lot of people who responded. And, and responded in, like, ways because I mentioned, and this is something I try and bring up to a lot of people, is that, like, if you, if you do have a, a clinical mental illness, you are entitled to take time off under the ADA and a lot of other things. And a lot of people literally did not realize that they had the right to either use their sick time for mental illness. They were like, I didn't realize I could call in sick when I felt depressed. And I was like, man, if it's not there for your mental illness, what the fuck is it there for? If you have paid sick leave, and I'm going to plug a campaign I'm working on right now. Uh, Washington yeah. State has an initiative that's hopefully going to be on the ballot in November. We're collecting signatures that's going to be raising the minimum wage. But it's also going to be paid sick leave. And I think the really important thing about paid sick leave for all Washington State workers is that that is also going to be paid mental health leave. Like, that's the thing about sick leave. Use your sick leave to stay home when you are depressed or when you're going through some shit. Um, and it's, like, safe leave for people fleeing domestic violence and that kind of thing. So that's, like, an addendum to this campaign, which I think not, not very many people are paying attention to. Um... But talking about that kind of thing, I think, was the time when I really heard from the most people who just literally did not realize that, like, that was an option for them. And I was like, yeah, fucking take a sick day. 
do that thing. I need to do that thing more. Like, I need to take my own advice on that front. But I think that was the time. I can't think of a time when I've ever had, like, one person who really stood out. Mostly it's this, like, chorus of support that is astounding and incredibly validating and also, like, there's, like, kind of a sadness to it, though, too, because you realize how many people are just kind of, like, white-knuckling it through. And so it's kind of nice to be able to, like, associate with, like, a large volume of people in that way because it's like, oh, no, there's really, like, look around at all of these people who are here in the same. So that's usually the response that is, like, the best. I mean, anytime there's not just a wall of negativity, I'm like, big win today. So that's pretty solid. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, we're sort of winding down our time sure. together. Where where do folks find your writing? Where do they find your tweets and Seattleish and all of it? Yeah, so you can follow Seattleish at Seattleish. Um, there's not an E at the end of Seattle where you might think there is. It just goes L right into the I. Uh, and we just got a super fly new design. A friend of ours, um, she did like a bang up job making our website look so much cuter, and I'm so happy. <laughs> We've been collecting donations for like a year and a half to pay for this like makeover because the original Tumblr was like such a hideous shit show of just like us slapping things together, and so now it like actually looks really good. So uh, yeah, and you can go to seattleish.com. You can find me on Twitter at Ms. Hannah Brooks. Um, you can find me on my website, which is just hannahbrooksolson.com. Um, and the website just kind of sits there, but if you want to read like other things I've written, I have like a portfolio that's linked out. And do not try and friend me on Instagram unless I know you in person because I will not accept it. Anytime I write something that gets big in any way, I get a ton of Instagram follower requests. And I don't take them. And I'm sorry, but Instagram is, like, my one platform that's, like, really for people I actually know. Because, like, I post pictures of my house and my dog and my family. And uh, and it's, like, the one place on the internet that's really for me. So unless I know you, don't fucking find me on Instagram because I'm not going to accept you. Um, you can maybe try to friend me on Facebook, but I might not friend you there either. I gotta have somewhere for me. Twitter's a good place to get to know me. Alright, tweet it, tweet it out at Hannah Brooks Olson. Thank you so much for coming Thank on you. the podcast. This was great. Yes, I hope it was informative or at least not boring. Anything but boring, you definitely <laughs> win for the most F-bombs dropped in any episode, so. My mom would be proud! I'll give you, I'll give you a, a trophy, <laughs> trophy later. Yes.